Welcome back to CoreYAM, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Goberti. And I'm Breed C. Bree, as you know, I have a lot of respect for our PEM colleagues and what they're tasked with. Finding the sick among the not sick and that which should be imaged and treated versus that which just needs reassurance is a tall order in a population that can't really tell you what's wrong. And one example of that is febrile seizures. Oh, for sure. As a parent, a fever alone in your child is enough to stoke fear. Add on a seizure and I'm going to be terrified. Febrile seizure is something that we've all seen in training. It's the most common type of seizure in children under five years of age. They occur in 2 to 5% of children, so it's important for us to delve into the topic and talk about how we classify them, what to look out for when distinguishing the simple from the complex, and how to best manage them while allaying parental fears. Let's start off with what is considered a febrile seizure and who gets them. Okay, so broadly, these are going to be children with a fever aged 6 months to 5 years of age and without a CNS infection. Now, we know that these run in families. If a kid's parents had them as a child, then they are 4.4 times more likely to have a febrile seizure. And, as expected, we see a similar increase when siblings are affected and, to a lesser degree, even nieces and nephews. As for bugs, the most common one identified is human herpes virus 6, but also 7 and influenza A and B are on the list of culprits. Okay, Bree, so what are the two big categories we are using when we're approaching febrile seizures? Well, the most common type, luckily, is going to be the simple febrile seizure, which is defined as generalized tonic-clonic activity lasting less than 15 minutes in a child six months to five years of age. A complex febrile seizure is going to be one that lasts longer than 15 minutes, occurs in a child outside of this age range, is focal, or that recurs within a 24-hour period. I always have to remind myself about the 15-minute duration because that really does seem like a long time to seize. So let's say EMS brings a one-year-old who had cough, congestion, fever for the last day or so, and the parents witness a generalized seizure lasting three minutes, and the child is now back to baseline. How are you approaching these patients, Bree? For a lot of our simple febrile seizures, we'll likely only have to take a thorough history, i.e. make sure the kid's vaccinated, make sure there's no trauma, evidence of meningitis, or potential toxic ingestion, and do a good physical exam including keeping an eye out for a particular rash. A lot of these cases won't need labs, imaging, or an EEG. The big question here is, does this patient need an LP to rule out meningitis? Does the child have meningeal signs, symptoms, or risk factors? Exactly. The AEP suggests considering an LP if a child is in the 6-month to 12-month age range and is not immunized for H. flu type B and strep pneumo. Now, the same goes for children who have been on antibiotics, with the reasoning being that this could mask the signs and symptoms of meningitis. Now, keep in mind that both of these are level D recommendations, or just expert opinions, and we don't really have very good data backing up these statements. Okay, so now what about complex seizures? This is a little more difficult to answer, because these children are going to require an individualized approach. There are a couple of things that we do know. One, hyponatremia is more common in this group than in the general population. Two, LPs are more commonly done by providers, but these are low yield with one study showing bacterial meningitis being diagnosed in just 0.9%, all of whom did not have a normal exam or negative cultures. Three, neuroimaging is also exceedingly low yield if the patient returns to baseline. So ultimately, the fact that the patient had a seizure doesn't have that much bearing on how the patient should be worked up. If they have history and exam concerning for meningitis, they should get an LP. And if they look dehydrated or edematous, you would have more of a reason to get a chemistry. 
Interesting. So if a child has returned to baseline, it almost doesn't matter whether they had a simple or complex seizure when determining what type of test you're going to order. Yeah, a lot of data to digest here. But these patients may be overworked up, and we must make more considerations in our approach to complex febrile seizures. I say that because there is one study that showed the duration of complex febrile seizure, greater than 30 minutes, was associated with a higher incidence of bacterial meningitis. Let's move on to how we're managing these patients, shall we? Sure. So if the seizure lasted for more than five minutes, you can give a benzo either IV or intranasally. The treatment for febrile status is a bit too hefty of a topic to cover appropriately in this episode. Now, if they are no longer seizing, the general answer is going to be try to find out why the patient actually had the fever. If you're able to identify a bacterial cause, then you should direct your antibiotic choice accordingly. And if they are still febrile, you may make them a little more comfortable with some Tylenol or Motrin. So this brings us to an interesting point on what we should be directing patients to do after they leave the ED when it comes to antipyretics. Does giving alternating antipyretics around the clock help? So this is an excellent question and one that I'm sure comes up all the time in the pediatric emergency department when a febrile seizure comes in. And before we get into one of the newer studies, I will say that a majority of the body of data that we have on this question suggests that there is no difference, that it doesn't matter whether you give them antipyretics around the clock. So that being said, there was a study that came out last year in 2018 in pediatrics which found that giving Tylenol Q6 hours for the first 24 hours following the initial seizure decreased the rate of recurrence when compared to children who did not receive antipyretics. The number needed to treat in this study was 7. But it's important to note that this finding, like I said before, doesn't really jive with the rest of the data we have on this topic. And there are questions on whether we can generalize these findings from just one emergency department in Japan. True. But with little downside and the added comfort of being afebrile, I recommend treating the fever. So Brian, what are you telling parents about the chances of someone having another febrile seizure? Now, the rate of recurrence across the board is pretty high, with about one-third of patients having another febrile seizure, and with most of them happening within the first year after the initial seizure. Now, the risk goes up if the patient was younger when they had the first episode, with that rate reaching over 50% if they were younger than one year of age. We also know that the risk is greater when the temperature at which they had the febrile seizure was lower. Now, the PEM world has a lot of good data on this, and we are going to include a table in our show notes that will help providers calculate the risk based on multiple factors. Another thing to consider is how long the next febrile seizure will be. This is obviously very difficult to predict, but we do know that there's a correlation between having a long initial febrile seizure and the next one being prolonged. This is important when counseling the parents and giving anticipatory guidance. Okay, one last med question. Should they be started on anti-epileptics? Nope. Risks outweigh benefits for this. Just Tylenol and Motrin. Now, another question that comes up is, what does this mean for my kid in the long term? So prognosis is pretty good. Children will likely not have behavior or cognitive deficits after having a febrile seizure, unless they develop afebrile seizures. The likelihood of developing epilepsy is a bit above that of the general population, at 1-2% to if the patient had a febrile seizure. Yeah, and this is one way in which there's a significant difference between simple and complex seizures. Those who had a complex seizure will have a risk of 5-10% to of developing epilepsy. Finally, what's the follow-up? Generally, just regular PMD follow-up with strict return precautions depending on the cause of fever. There really isn't a role for PEDS neuro follow-up here to get an EEG. Now, an EEG can help us in determining who's at risk of developing epilepsy, But this isn't 100%, and what we do with that information is pretty limited if the patient is not having recurrent afebrile seizures. Okay, lots of good stuff here. 
Let's wrap it up with some take-home points. Sure. So first, febrile seizures are classified as either simple or complex, but the significance of this distinction is mainly useful in determining prognosis. Our workup in the ED should be focused on the cause of fever if the child has returned to baseline. If there are signs and symptoms consistent with meningitis, an LP should be performed as we would with any child. Tylenol and Motrin may or may not help prevent recurrence during the same febrile illness, but why not give it? It's humane. And finally, there's a slightly higher risk of epilepsy in children who had a simple febrile seizure, but that goes up in those who had a complex one. That's all for this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM and visit us at our website, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian Bryant, signing off.